Hi, I am Tom Sinclair, Chair of the Department of Public Administration at Binghamton University. I want to welcome you to our new podcast. My colleague, David Campbell, calls us to do good well, and that captures the public service mission of our Masters of Public Administration program and our conviction that informed and responsible community action can solve community problems. What is the Philanthropy Incubator at Binghamton University? To answer that question, you would have to ask its founder. It's really kind of an initiative or, you know, just something that, that I created as a re in response to a funding opportunity that I received from a national organization called Campus Compact. That's Binghamton University professor David Campbell. After receiving the initial grant from Campus Compact, the Philanthropy Incubator gave its first award in 2009. While I was working with Campus Compact, this national foundation called the Learning by Giving Foundation, actually it was initially called the Sunshine Lady Foundation. The Sunshine Lady was Doris Buffett, Warren Buffett's sister, who wanted to seed habits of philanthropy at colleges and universities around the country. She created this foundation that gave money to colleges and universities to give away through experiential philanthropy courses. And since 2010, I've received money from what was initially the Sunshine Lady Foundation is now called the Learning by Giving Foundation, which at that time, because they required un teaching undergraduate classes, we no longer had money for our MPA class. So a group of alumni came to us and said, you know, we've been doing these fundraisers around the community called Parties with a Purpose. We'd like to do one that supports the philanthropy incubator so that the graduate students still have money to give away. Starting maybe in 2012, the MPA GSO said, let's take this over and make it possible for the MPA GSO to raise money so that we can continue to have the graduate class, PATH 552 issues in nonprofit administration, to have money to give away in the same way the undergraduate class does. So since 2012, the party with a purpose has raised the money for the MPA course what has impressed me is the GSO has really embraced this idea of the party with a purpose and even created the a position in the MPA GSO called philanthropy, philanthropy chair, a person like Shelby who um, held that role last year. So that's its history. My experience with the class was great. I gush about this to Dave all the time, how much I love the class. And I think I'm one of his biggest recruiters for that class. That is current accelerated MPA student Isabel Londano. With an overall positive experience, Isabel notes the challenges that arise when deciding a grant recipient. So a lot of us had the the internal battle of how how do we how do we make this decision? How do we do goodwill? Is something that Professor Campbell likes to say. How do we maximize? need but also make sure that all of our interests and our desires to help a certain sector of nonprofits how does that work as the professor of the graduate course dr lauren dula offers perspective on how she and professor campbell assist students through the decision making process of selecting a grant recipient for the philanthropy incubator need is a big question in all of our classes how do we balance need versus desire and just interest. I think we try to present different frameworks 
for viewing these organizations and try to bring the students together to make kind of cohesive assessments and eventually land on a single recipient. But also, one of the things actually I remember Isabel telling me after she took the class is that uh, she really saw herself more as a member of the Binghamton community after taking that class because the course forces students to learn about these nonprofit organizations in the community. And in my class and in uh, Dr. Dula's class as well, I, you start with about 70 or 70, a universe of 70 or 75 organizations, and then you whittle that initial group down to about five. But that process forces you to learn about what's the nature and extent of the nonprofit sector in Binghamton and Brew County. What are the different ways in which people in the community have come together to try to address community problems through nonprofit organizations? And students, particularly undergraduates, are not always in the community. So this is all new information. My desire is that they know the community better, they learn about community needs, they know these organizations better. And students like Isabel then are really prepared to think more about being a professional who wants to make a difference through nonprofit organizations and government and then take classes like um, Professor Dula's that uh, look at these issues in a more sophisticated way. Alum Shelby Hochberg served as philanthropy chair of the MPA Graduate Student Organization in 2019 and reflected on how the content of both undergraduate and graduate philanthropy courses informed the decision-making process. So we were armed with a lot of different ideas about what constitutes value in giving and which nonprofits are the most important to give to. We talked about giving with the head versus giving with the heart. And we did look at the Broome County Needs Assessment and try to determine which nonprofits really filled the needs of the community best. It was interesting to get to know people through interviewing different nonprofits to decide where the money for Party with Purpose would go. It was also great to get to know people through actually fundraising last year. I think I mentioned this before, but just the generosity of everyone that we interacted with was amazing. Between the small businesses that let us keep gift cards to raffle off and Visions and Twin River Commons that let us keep their sponsorships, it was just really great. And there's definitely a spirit of helping each other out. So last year was my first time cutting the course path 552, which is issues in philanthropy. And so that course is tied to the work that our philanthropy chair and the GSO does. We solicit proposals from the community in terms of requesting a grant. And the students within that course actually go through a review process and we talk about all the different ways that we can assess an organization and how we would value one program over another when they are quite different and just how people approach giving money. So after many weeks working with the students, they select a finalist who will be the recipient of the actual funds raised by the students who have worked so hard with the GSO. So last year was particularly unique. Two years ago, it was a normal big event with tickets and raffles and everyone came together in 
the lost dog. It was a very social event, which it normally is. And then this year we had a pandemic. So what was particularly interesting was having the experience of going from fundraising events to how do you raise funds for this organization we have now selected when a pandemic strikes and people can't come together in that social way. I think last year was a real experiment and kind of deviation from the norm. Last year, we were planning for a normal event. We were going to have it at the Lost Dog again. And I I think the date was March 21st. And then things entirely shut down on March 14th. We had sort of a week to turn everything around and decide how to still raise money. But I think everyone who was involved with the event last year did a really great job of reacting to it. We receive donations in three different ways, four different ways. We receive uh, ticket sales. So a ticket sale is about $30, and then some of that goes to cover the venue, and the rest of it goes directly to the organization. We also receive individual donations, sometimes from alumni, sometimes people just add additional funds to the ticket that they're purchasing. We receive in-kind donations from local businesses around Binghamton for raffle prizes, and then the raffle tickets also contribute to the final amount that we donate to the organization. And then we receive sponsorships from organizations like Visions and some of the student housing like Twin River Commons. And so last year, even though the event that we had pitched to all of these people was canceled, we were able to keep all of the in-kind donations. We were able to keep all the sponsorships and several people that had bought tickets chose to donate that ticket price after it was refunded as well. We love working with Binghamton University. They're so helpful to our program. They help us in a lot of ways. That is Nicole Barron, Executive Director of RISE. So we were established in 1979 when we opened one of New York State's first domestic violence shelters. And right now our domestic violence shelter is one of the largest in the region, but we also offer comprehensive domestic violence services. In addition to our shelter, we offer um, advocacy services, counseling, and community education. Through our shelter, we serve about 250 individuals, um, women, men, and children, and then about um, 1,800 through our non-residential advocacy and counseling services. RISE had a project in mind when they initially applied for the Philanthropy Incubator Grant, but Nicole explains how priorities within the organization shifted when COVID hit, we kind of realized like, that's not so important to us anymore. So the educational support role that I talked about earlier, some of like the funds we received actually went towards that project. It was only like partially funded. So we were able to like put some of our organizational funds into like making it happen. So some of the things like we weren't able to get funding for were like the in-wall wireless that we needed to be able to like have connectivity to the internet, um, other like various workbooks and supplies. So it really went towards like the educational program, which, you know, we hadn't foreseen previously. So it definitely shifted a lot as we went kind of went through the process and learned that um, the funding would be more um, discretionary, more flexible. Nicole went on to explain current challenges RISE is facing in the pandemic. 
it's definitely been a, a crazy year as we adapt to COVID and kind of the unique circumstances it presents for um, survivors. We did end up closing down our shelter for about two weeks as we kind of tried to respond to the pandemic. So we bought a lot of supplies that we didn't just have on hand. And we are like spending those two weeks just preparing to reopen shelter. So then when we reopened, um, operations looked quite different than they did previously. And we kind of continue that to this day. So what we do is like when someone calls, we have to ask the typical screening for COVID questions when someone is seeking shelter. Again, when they like enter our shelter building and each day, um, everyone in the family gets daily temperature um, and symptom logs, um, as well as like any staff that are working that day have to do that as well. Um, we also have like, are doing much more vigorous um, cleaning and disinfecting, mandating masks in all communal areas, um, which is most of the shelter, um, pretty much only in their bedrooms. We don't allow, um, people don't have to wear their masks. Um, the biggest change has been capacity. Um, right. when you think about social distancing and keeping six feet apart, um, that's a lot harder in a communal living situation. So what we've had to do is um, kind of reduce capacity at our shelters. Thankfully, that hasn't been so much an issue. Like they don't want to enter a communal living situation right now. And we've, you know, we've tried hard to get the word out that, you know, it's very safe. We're taking every precaution, like everything the CDC recommends that we're doing at our shelter. So that's probably like the largest component is like figuring out how to manage a communal living situation during a pandemic. Cindy Martin is the Director of Resource Development at the Rural Health Network, which was a grant recipient chosen by the graduate philanthropy class. Rural Health Network of South Central New York uh, was started in 1998, and our mission is uh, to impact the health and well-being of rural people and communities. We're uh, currently based our main office in Binghamton. Um, we serve up to 10 counties, depending on which of our programs we might want to talk about. Our core service area is Broom, Delaware, and Tioga. Obviously, we were selected for the graduate project, which was intended to be a party with a purpose. Uh, again, it's 2020, and most of the plans to actually raise the money for the grant that we were awarded um, had to be canceled or changed. Um, we were delighted that um, the students were able to convince some of the sponsors to continue to uh, sponsor the event that didn't happen. And so our grant was perhaps not as large as the students would have liked to have made in a different year. Um, but we were thrilled to have pretty much anything to infuse something into this project. And the program that was the recipient of a philanthropy incubator grant is our Northern Broom Cares program, which is relatively new. We really just started services to the community in January of 2020. The grants we write have to already have some goals and objectives. Uh, so we sort of have a, a plan in mind at the point that we submit a grant. And this project was brand new. Um, we had only done like one or two minor home repairs already at the point that we 
wrote for this. Um, the funding for the home repairs is not included in the um, financing from the New York State Office for Aging that's funding the overall project. Um, but it is included as one of the uh, goals that we wanted to do for which we'd need to seek additional funds. As a result of the pandemic, Rural Health Network had to make some adjustments to their programming. With that said, Cindy shared insight on how such programming may become the new normal for the organization. So we've just started um, selected home visits again, um, you know, carefully evaluating which client really seems most in need of that personal contact. Um, so we're, we're doing that. I don't think we're ever going back from the call centers, uh, transportation call center standpoint, we're going to keep those remote phones. They can be used at any location. Um, it would allow anybody to still work from home if they needed to for some reason. Uh, we don't intend to go back on those technological changes. We also had already, uh, prior to the COVID pandemic, we'd been starting to look at what could Rural Health Network's role be in telehealth services or tel um, not really telemedicine because we're not a clinical provider. Uh, what could our role be? And so we've started to accelerate those conversations perhaps a little more quickly than we would have. We're doing a telehealth pilot with some of those Northern Broom clients where we've provided them with tablet sized computers and the ability to connect with their healthcare provider in a telehealth appointment. Um, these are mostly clients that didn't have the technology or perhaps the internet service to make that possible. So we got jetpacks to go with the tablets and our staff have been training older adults to use them. Uh, and we're doing that on a, on a loan basis. Um, so we have 10 of them. And I think the most we've had out at any one time so far is five, but not necessarily always to the same clients. So it's sort of rotating based on who needs them. And so those telehealth conversations are still continuing. We changed our health education services to virtual format. We did have to cancel um, a stepping on workshop, which was a falls prevention workshop done as a group. And because it's a licensed project uh, through another provider, we weren't able to ourselves adapt that course material to a virtual um, uh, format. So we did have to cancel that, but we were able to, to start some others and three other um, health education programs that we offer, we were able to switch to virtual. And the nice part about that is now it doesn't matter if we have to get a group of six people together from the same community. We can have six people from throughout the entire Southern tier available at the same time by phone who can participate and it makes it a more viable option to offer those programs. Might lose a little bit in that interaction between the participants, but they're all gaining something um, that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Founded in 2007, the Binghamton nonprofit Vines has strong ties to Binghamton University. Being a BU graduate myself, you know, I have a lot of ties to the university and 
A lot of the folks who were involved in founding Vines also came out of the university. We had um, a lot of folks connected to the environmental studies department in particular. Um, and so staying connected to the university has been not only really valuable to us, but also just really enjoyable. Um, so it's nice to see, you know, the new waves of students getting connected to the community. And so I think it's just really valuable to um, give students the chance to know, you know, how to apply what they're learning in school to the real world. Um, and I, I think it's just really beneficial of really, and the, especially, you know, when we talk with the um, graduate student classes, they're just so engaged because a lot of folks are already starting to work in the nonprofit sector and they they want to learn how to address problems that they've come across in their experiences already. And they can, if we can help them with that, that's great. Vines had been working on a project for a couple years and Amelia LaDolce explains what they were able to accomplish with the grant from the Philanthropy Incubator. We had been in the process of expanding our urban farm. We went from a half an acre to two point, uh, two and a quarter acres over the last two years. Um, there were a bunch of properties surrounding our urban farm that FEMA and the city offered buyouts to because um, they had been flooded twice during 2006 and 2011. Um, and so the properties that chose to take the buyout, um, the city then demolished the properties and we took over management of them and expanded our growing space onto them. So our project was to um, continue or to finish the expansion of the farm through constructing, constructing another hoop house, um, which is an unheated greenhouse essentially, um, and also converting a shipping container into cold storage, into a walk-in cooler. So, um, which allows us to have on-site storage of our veggies, which otherwise we, we did not, we haven't had previously. So um, we um, knew what, you know, where we wanted to get the supplies and things. So it was just, you know, it was a matter of getting everything ordered and um, put in a place um, with everything going on. It, it does take a little bit longer to get, you know, folks in the construction trades out. So, you know, we do need to have an electrician. We do need to have someone deal with blown in our um, spray foam insulation. So we're um, almost done with the conversion of the shipping container to cold storage. Um, we just have a few finishing touches um, and we were able to finish the, the hoop house and get that going um, to, for use this year. So, um, you know, and we, when we look at these kinds of grants that we know are not going to be things that we're going to be able to get year after year. We do really look at, you know, specific projects that need an infusion of funding. Um, every so often you find yourself in a situation as a nonprofit where you really just need additional operating funds, funds for just general support of the organization. And sometimes that's just what you need to apply for. Um, but we, you know, we're, we're working on developing more sustainable funding streams for those operating costs and then using these kinds of you know one-off grant opportunities for very specific tangible projects um, so that was our approach um, to that and um, we'll i think what we have some um 
pictures on our website now, we have um, a page just dedicated to the urban farm expansion, and we'll keep updating that if folks want to go see um, what the Philanthropy Incubator Funds have supported. Similarly to the Rural Health Network in RISE, Vines also had to deal with the unexpected challenges of the global pandemic. The coronavirus has definitely um, had a big impact on our services and that we're, just, we're seeing more and more demand for services. Um, we have 400, about 400 garden beds that people can rent every year for community gardens. And um, while we typically still have garden beds available in mid to late May, we were selling out pretty much every garden in early April. And um, I think there was a lot of uncertainty for folks about where the food was gonna come from, a need to just have something to do outside and get their mind, get people's minds off of things, right? In, in March, we just didn't know what was gonna happen. And so we just had a flood of people um, reaching out to us during garden plots. Um, and we also had a lot of demand for our farm share program, which provides boxes of produce on a weekly basis to folks. Um, we offer discounts um, through that program. And, you know, we acknowledge that because of the pandemic, a lot of people were going to have uncertain work situations and income, um, more challenges with income than even in the past. So while we normally offer up to 50% off of those shares, we decided to um, offer 75% off um, and, and got some additional grant funds to make that, that possible because we did see, you know, that demand was just climbing um, also for our farm share program early on. So um, we just, and then another thing we did, we had a program that we planned on launching in the fall um, at which, in which we're going to build raised beds at people's homes. And um, we actually decided to launch that in the spring because um, we were running out of community garden space. We also built a couple additional beds at gardens where we, we had the space and just kept trying to, you know, create more opportunities for people to be able to garden as much as we could. Um, and, you know, we wound up, um, through the Build-A-Garden program, we served an additional 50 households um, this summer that we wouldn't otherwise have had served, uh, you know, for another year or so. So, um, you know, I think that you just, like, do the best that you can in the situation, you know, amid, amid, among all of these things that we were doing to try to increase our capacity. Of course, we're trying to secure um, protective equipment for our staff, so we're trying to find um, gloves and masks and um, sanitizing solution. And that was all very difficult and transition to all remote um, teaching of our workshops and everything else and trying to get a webcam was impossible. I mean, there are just all of these problems that everybody was facing. We're not alone in that. Um, but because of what this year brought, we just had to do the best we can and, and push through it and um, adjust to serve as many people as we could the best we could. Thank you for tuning in to Do Good Well from Binghamton University's Department of Public Administration, a podcast dedicated to public service and the folks at the forefront of doing good in our communities. To learn more about topics discussed in this episode, or earning your MPA degree, please check the links in our show notes.